Let freedom ring. Let freedom ring. Let freedom ring. Let freedom ring. This is Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom with Bill Ayers. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We open each seminar, each edition of the podcast with a poem. Our common practice and our ritual announcement to seminar is now in session. Today's poem is Lesson One, I Would Sing by Judith Ortiz Cofer. In Spanish, cantaria means I would sing. Cantaria bajo una luna. I would sing under the moon. Cantaria cerca de tu tumba, by your grave I would sing. Cantaria de una vida perdida, of a wasted life I would sing. If I may, if I could, I would sing. In Spanish, the conditional tense is the tense of dreamers, of philosophers, fools, drunkards, of widows, new mothers, and small children, of old people, cripples, saints, and poets. It's the grammar of expectation, and the formula for hope. Cantaria, amaria, vivaria. Please repeat after me. I would sing, I would love, I would live. Let's continue with our other traditional feature, our free write. So pause the podcast for a few minutes and write wildly without taking your pen from the page. No stopping, no edits or revisions. This one won't take too long, because today's prompt is this. Tell your life story in 60 seconds and then write a six-word memoir. Okay, start writing. I'll be right here when you get back. Email us at underthetreepod at gmail.com to share your response to the writing prompt or if you just want to introduce yourself and build community. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel, Under the Tree Podcast, for clips and interviews. And follow us on Instagram at Under the Tree Podcast. Welcome back. One segment of the podcast is called Our Book of Books, an opportunity to share titles and essential readings with one another. This is a time to study, a time to reflect, a time to think deeply and become analytical. Our Book of Books. In all of my teaching, there are required readings that offer a starting point for dialogue, but they can't possibly fulfill every student's wide intellectual aspirations, even for one seminar or for a single term. And so I always ask my students to begin developing an annotated reading autobiography called My Book of Books, what I'm reading and what I'll need to read and why to become a more developed, educated person. So I typically call it My Bob, capital B, small o, capital B. My Bob is typically projected five years forward and should reflect your best thinking on a distinct personal, professional, political journey that you are taking, as well as an idiosyncratic intellectual and ethical passage through school and through life. You know, over the years, I've had some wonderful examples of this. So, so last year, I had a student whose Bob was, I want to put together 10 texts that will make me an even angrier feminist. I thought that was a great uh, choice. And she annotated 10 books 
that the, she thought would even make her more intense and more committed. I had another student who said, I skated through high school without reading any of the important books I should have read, and now I feel that I missed something. And so that student went back and made a book of books, or his Bob, that was Huckleberry Finn and Moby Dick and Native Son and uh, The Fire Next Time, books that he should have read uh, 10, 20 years ago, but was now going to catch up with. Um, I had another student who, participant in the current upsurge of the Black Freedom Movement, decided he wanted to read the classic texts from the Black Freedom Movement of the 60s and the Black Freedom Movement uh, during the days of Frederick Douglass and the abolitionist movement. So he made a book of books of 10 or 12 um, important historical texts. So I'm going to suggest a few books to you, and we'll all get going on developing our own book of books. Before I do, I want to give a shout out to one of my publishers. I have four publishers. I've had many publishers, but I'm very close to Teachers College Press, Beacon Press, the new press. But I want to give a particular shout out to Haymarket Books right here in Chicago. For almost 20 years, Haymarket's been opening doors and gates, breaching walls, opening minds. Their catalog is absolutely filled with germinal texts. The list, distinct and necessary voices, is indispensable. Aaron Dottie Roy, Naomi Klein, Angela Davis. It's an incredible list, and I recommend it. And they're more than a bookseller, more than a publishing house. Haymarket is a full participant in movement building, reframing conversations, connecting issues, making an inescapable case for radical change. More important, Haymarket is about creating a vital and authentic public square at a time when the erosion of the public is in full swing. Activists and radicals, organizers and movement builders, rebels and revolutionaries continue to find inspiration, information, and analysis at Haymarket. And so I recommend that you find them online and go through their catalog and pick out some of the books that will be meaningful for you. I'm going to recommend three books uh, for your book of books. And these are all books that I've read relatively recently and found hugely important. One is by my comrade and sister and um, colleague for many, many years, Barbara Ransby. Um, I think Barbara is a brilliant, brilliant activist and historian. And her book, her latest book is called Making All Black Lives Matter. It's in the spirit of the young Howard Zinn's book, The New Abolitionists. That was a small and influential book about SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, that was written and published during the last great wave of the Black Freedom Movement. And Ransby's book's an attempt to understand and amplify the current upsur upsurge in the centuries-old fight for freedom. And as with Zinn's book, you can feel both the serious historian at work with her ground firmly beneath her feet, but also the participant eager to record and urgent to make sense of this moment, history in the making. This intervention is a love letter to today's activists, as well as a healthy push to resist, reimagine, and rebuild a broad social movement against racial capitalism and for a world at peace and in balance. So Making All Black Lives Matter by Barbara Ransby. Second book I want to recommend is History Teaches Us to Resist, How Progressive Movements Have Succeeded in Challenging Times by Mary Frances Berry. Progress never springs fully formed from the heads of the powerful. It's always the green shoots that spring up improbably 
out of the fires from below. At this excruciating moment of crisis and catastrophe, Mary Frances Berry reminds us that our most powerful weapon in the struggle ahead is simply ourselves. This is a book of hard-won lessons and real inspiration, something to read and then to keep in your backpack for ready reference as we take to the streets and mobilize to storm the heavens. And finally, I want to recommend my comrade Frank Chapman's book, The Damned Don't Cry. Frank's life story is entirely compelling, and this memoir, riveting, trembling, real, is a foundational American narrative, illuminating the flip side of the mythical American dream, the agonizing, painful, and sometimes horrifying American nightmare. The Damned Don't Cry is the heartfelt personal account of one black man sentenced to life plus 50 years in prison when he was just 19 years old, and his lifelong struggle for truth and reconciliation, redemption and justice. On a deeper level, this is the story of our country in full, including the violence and the pain, the tragedy and the shame. The afterlife of slavery is made manifest on every page, vivid illustrations of oppression and predation, thunderous echoes of genocide, torture, and terrorism. The education of Frank Chapman contains a curriculum for the country and for all of us. Teacher, organizer, longtime inmate, and jailhouse lawyer, intellectual and writer, Frank Chapman is, above all, a class warrior and a freedom fighter. As a young man, he chose to storm the heavens in pursuit of human liberation, and he's never quit. In this essential book, we hear the adult voice, the mature voice, reflecting on that long-ago revolutionary commitment and urging us to build an unstoppable social movement for peace and justice. Welcome back uh, to Under the Tree. We're delighted to have David Stovall joining us today. Uh, He's a professor of African-American Studies, Criminology, Law, and Justice at the University of Illinois, Chicago. We were longtime colleagues. I retired about a decade ago, and we stopped being colleagues, but we, we remained friends and comrades. So it's great to have you joining us under the tree, David. Thanks for being here. Man, thanks so much for having me. Truly appreciate it. Tell me a bit about yourself, where you are these days, what's going on, and then I want to talk a bit about schools and where we're going in terms of education. Definitely. So I'm born and raised here in Chicago. I am currently, as you said, at the university, still at the University of Illinois at Chicago uh, for whatever reasons. Right. Um, And I have been working with young folks and families for the last 30 years around issues of education, housing and what people now refer to as prison abolition and that. Uh, for me, what that means is not so much these kind of wholesale, you know, thinking about the prisons as physical spaces, but the rationales that lead certain states, and when I say states, meaning large uh, systems of government all the way from the local to the, to the national, to rationalize reasons to incarcerate people. Mm. And I'm and in, in get, getting involved in that work, I've also started to really kind of get into the parallels of our way of the comrade Erica Miners, really understanding the parallels and the nexus between 
how prisons operate and how schools operate. Interesting. We talked to Crystal Laura the other day, and she, of course, wrote this book, Being Bad, which you know, My Baby Brother in the School to Prison Pipeline. Say, say a word about that, about, about what you mean by a nexus as opposed to a pipeline. Right, because the idea of a pipeline is that you are starting one place and ending another. And I think when we look at schools in some areas and the logics of the prison, they're pretty similar, right? So they're less dissimilar, right? They're similar and they actually intersect at the same time. They're not necessarily spaces that lead you from one place to another, but you're reminded in certain instances that in many cases are the same place. So the examples mm. I always use is that sometimes you go into schools, you look at the hallways, you see this line down the hallway and it says, please step to the right, right? And it's kind of like a passing uh, space that they use for the young folks, right? Young folks wear uniforms, usually some type of monochrome or two very basic um, uh, iterations, blue and white, tan and white, all tan, all blue. Uh, you walk through metal detectors. You have to start classes either with your hands folded in front of the desk behind your back. Uh, you have to walk in the hallways. You have to walk in the hallways with your hands behind your back, supposedly to keep you from hitting folks. But you know, when I just those things I just described are the exact same things that happen in prison, right? It's the exact same rationale. So. Mm-hmm. If that school looks just like a prison, then I'm not necessarily saying that you are going to leave this place and go to another. I'm reminding you at every instance that you're in jail, right? And your instruction is going to look like that. The way I engage you is going to look like that. And you're constantly going to be reminded of how to reject that logic. Now, the rejection of that logic by young people, I feel is important. Right. I think young people should reject the logic Mm. of the prison and they should reject their dehumanization. Mm. But the problem is we set them up and give rules and compliance. So when they reject their dehumanization, we now ostracize them in the extreme forms of suspensions and expulsions. So I think that's a that's a way to understand that nexus and how it operates in certain communities. And I think it's important to say in certain communities, right? Because there are schools in other spaces that are flourishing, right? That are thriving spaces. Mm-hmm. But there are spaces when you look in cities, in rural areas that are populated by black and brown folks, that's not necessarily how what the school looks like. So that's what I, how I understand the nexus. So, so you're saying that black and brown education is different still all these years after the civil rights movement, all these years after, after abolition, Still, it's different in the main for black kids, brown kids, immigrants from poor countries versus white kids and privileged kids. Is that right? I mean, I think we got to put this in context. I mean, this is the 66th anniversary of the Brown decision. And the Brown decision has never been fulfilled. And what we really have to look at, it was a flawed decision, right? So this thing around the Brown plaintiffs were never arguing to go to school with white kids. They just wanted their tax dollars to be used for what they intended them to be used for. The court's interpretation was that 
white kids, you know, black kids are now forced in whatever means to go to uh, historically white schools. And then in those spaces, they weren't really wholesale immigrated. I mean, the Little Rock Nine, right? How many students were in Little Rock Central High School, right? 1,500. So how is nine to 1,500 any sign of integration, right? Mm -hmm. This false nature of a gradual process has always been trash. I mean, so this thing around brown has never been fulfilled in theory, but the brown decision, in fact, was also problematic, right? Mm -hmm. So I think this thing around, and it's not to discount the efforts of Thurgood Marshall and the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, but in their own recollection, folks like Derek Bell, who worked with the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, admitted that the interpretation was incorrect, right? And what we should have been fighting for was the allocation of those resources to the places that they were intended to go. I'm intrigued that you said at the beginning that you you start with education, but then you branched out to housing, criminal justice. Make those make those links for us. I mean, housing, for example. What what's the link there? Yeah. So a good friend of mine would always say, we under, we need to understand that housing is an education issue, and education is a housing issue. So what he was talking about there was always this connection, right? So the national. Association of Realtors, right? They always do this year-end survey. And for the last 70 years, the number one determinant of a family choosing a place to live is the school that it's in proximity to, right? So it's not the walkability score. It's not your amenities. It has always been the school that you're mm. in proximity to. Okay. So now when we see shifts in schools, in terms of school closures or what have you, and then the erection of new schools. We can also locate in terms of demolitions, new housing development, or long-term stable housing, right? So this thing around, so the housing, so school schools go with where the housing is and then vice versa when people choose where they're gonna live, the first conduit is the school it's, it, it's in proximity to. Uh-huh. So segregated housing, uh, inadequate housing, the unhoused, all of that contributes to the collapse of education of any meaning for kids. Yes. Yeah. So, so what would education look like if your goal were free people in a free participatory society? What would education then look like? Right. This thing around, I think it would look, one of the things that it would have, would have in it was being able to meet the local needs of the residents who or the young folks and families who are actually in those schools, right? So when you think about a thriving school, those spaces are centers of community. They are spaces where families meet, congregate, engage, interact, and then they're all making decisions as to what accounts for a viable education, right? So you have some variety there, you have some criticality there, but you always, at the root of that, is engagement, right? This is a place that is not intended to isolate families or to keep families out, but to say, we don't exist if the families aren't inside of this place, 
right? So it is a reflection. That equitable school would be a reflection of what communities look like and the communities that we're trying to build, right? So those, I think, these spaces now become more important because when we talk about equity, equity is always getting people what they need because they need it. So now, what would a school look like that moved in that direction? What would a school look like that said, look, families are central to our understanding. And because they are, here's what we will do. And I think that's a, that's a very different understanding than the traditional order and compliance put forward by schooling. Right? So, and, I, and I'm making that difference between yeah. education and schooling. So you were deeply involved in the founding of a, of a high school that came out of a community struggle. Did that school represent what you're, this idea that you're putting forth here? Did that school embody some of that? Maybe tell yeah. a little bit about that. So in 2001, there were a group of 14 folks who went on a hunger strike for 19 days. But it was part of a larger community struggle to get quality education for their community. And this particular community is the neighborhood uh, called Little Village or nicknamed La Villita. And what was important to the residents of La Villita was that the city of Chicago was building these very high-end magnet schools that are extremely difficult to be admitted to. And they were experiencing overcrowding in their community and they wanted, they had actually been promised a neighborhood high school in 1997. Mm. So from 1997 to 2001, the community had been pressuring the city and saying, look, you're building all these high-end schools to attract high-end, largely white families back to the city. Where's our school? And where's our school? Because we were the first ones promised, right? Mm. So they sent one of the uh, best protests that I've ever seen is when they brought a mariachi band into the local school board meeting and they sang a song, Donde La Escuela, right? Mm-hmm. But, you know, and all the, all the board members who didn't speak Spanish were like, oh, this is great. Yeah. <laughs> and people were like, yeah. no, you, you need to understand what they're saying. Like, look, we were promised a school. Where is it? Right. 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 And that, I think that's, and then from that space, they were saying, well, what would a school look like? And I, I really appreciate the organizers who actually canvassed La Vita because they asked this question that I thought was, I, I thought, to, and still to this day, was just excellent, right? He said, in your dream of dreams, what would a school look like? And that was a question that was uh, uh, forwarded uh, by longtime organizer uh, Tomas Gaete. And he walked around with a group of organizers and he asked folks in their houses and said, you know, in your dream of dreams, what would a school look like? And that is a great organizing question, isn't it? Listen, yeah. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just so clear, right? And what they tried to do was build a composite of those dreams, mm. right? And I think that's a... That's a different type of space. And throughout the city here in Chicago and across the country, you see these small pockets of schools that were created in this way. Right. So you have the old Puente Academy for Peace and Justice uh, in Brooklyn. Right. You have all other types of Paulo Freire um, Institute 
out in Arizona, right? You got all these spaces that were created with the understanding that schooling has never worked for those who have been oppressed. Mm. It has always been education. It has always been being able to ask the questions of our condition and being able to change them, right? right? And back to a point that you often make in your writing and public conversations is that this is fraught, right? It's fraught and it's contested, right? And we have to often understand that we are existing in those contradictions. But I think at its root, that's what folks were trying to engage in terms mm-hmm. of build, the building of a school. You know, it's, that question really, really resonates with me. In your dream of dreams, what would a good school look like? You know, that's the question when folks were organized against the, the police academy that Rahm Emanuel was going to build. They went around the community and asked the question, if you had $50 million, what would be your priorities exactly. for spending it? And, and exactly. no one ever mentioned exactly. a police academy, right? So, exactly. Exactly. so I think that's the kind of thing that good organizers are always doing. But, you know, you say that these folks put together something that had uh, several um, uh, elements. And I, I'd like to talk a little bit about what those elements are. And I'll tell you why I'd like to talk about it. Is I think we are in a position nationally now to, to ask that question. In your dream of dreams, what would a good school look like? Or another way of saying it is, what's a, what's a new deal for public education? Or another mm-hmm. way of saying it is, Black Panther 10-point program. What's our 10-point program? What do we want? Because I think we're going to come out of this uh, coronavirus pandemic lockdown and there are going to be a lot of ideas on this table. And a lot of those ideas are quite reactionary. Going yes. back to normal is not possible. So, <laughs> so, so if you were starting to articulate those that 10-point program or, or that dream of dreams, what would yours be? What would it include? Right. right. I, I think about four points, right, in terms of some things that are, that are viable, that are necessary, and I agree with you wholeheartedly, that there's a very small window by which to enact them, right? First one is the end of high-stakes standardized testing. Right. This is a this is a larger project rooted in white supremacy and eugenics. It has never served those who have been historically marginalized and disenfranchised by traditional uh, schooling. And we know that the only thing that it actually assesses is how well you take a test. Right. So this this thing. So literally the end of it. Right. Another thing, the end of grading. So now we are able to say, well, what, how are we assessing learning? What demonstrates learning, right? Because grading often has been compliance with whatever rubric says that you have demonstrated some knowledge of the particular content. And that's not necessarily accurate in terms of what we know about how people learn, right? So this thing around getting rid of that and actually going into a more robust in depth system that allows young people to demonstrate how they are learning. Sweet. Right? Yeah. So I, that thing around, so getting rid of those two, two things. Third, the way we assess, getting rid of the current shift of how we assess incoming teachers, right? So for your listeners, there's a teaching assessment for people who are entering teaching called the Education Teacher Performance Assessment. And it is ridiculous, right? I mean, this is, you know, you extort $350 from a 
an incoming teacher for somebody to evaluate them who has no knowledge of the context in which they teach. So how is this person going to provide them any constructive feedback if they don't even know the context in which this person is teaching? And teaching is probably about 90% context, right? right? So this thing around, so now this, we see the fallacy of it, right? We see the unnecessary, we see the unnecessary space in it and they don't have to exist. So we need to, we need to revisit that and actually abolish that practice. And I think the fourth thing, and the comrade and dear friend Monique Rideau talks about this in terms of community schooling. We now have a chance to pivot back into asking this question, how are schools reflective of the needs of the community that it serves? In what way does the school serve the needs of communities? Right. I mean, like this thing around it, you know, history is an interesting thing. So the area that I grew up in uh, as a young person in Chicago is a place called Calumet Heights. Mm. And people often refer to it as Avalon. Right. Because I didn't really know it was Calumet Heights until I was in my 20s. Right. So, you know, I always thought I lived on the outskirts of Avalon. But this thing around people would talk about and Avalon was actually, I mean, Calumet Heights was actually in between two steel mills. And it's an interesting thing that people would talk about when it was hot in the summer, Mm. the schools would open up and people would sleep in the schools and sleep in the parks. (laughs) So this thing, this thing around, you know, you can find these pictures of people sleeping in the park and sleeping in schoolhouses because you could get a cross breeze wow. <laughs> through the gym, right? So wow. this thing around when we think about centers of community, schools have always been centers of community for certain people. So now what does it mean when we've centered the people who have historically been excluded? And then this is and this is the this fifth one is more I know I said four originally but the fifth one is much more localized to Chicago, and I think this becomes important when we prioritize schools on the south and west sides that have been historically disinvested of resources, mm. right? And I think that's a that's a different way of understanding achievement and learning because this thing around if you put resources into the folks who have been excluded, then they'll do, they'll meet the challenge. But the thing is, will they have the resources to meet the challenge? It is never about the ineptitude of black and brown babies, right? It is always about what resources we have for them to engage and thrive. So this, we have a mutual friend, Jay Gillen, and he talks a lot about this question of kids' education being something that, uh, it has to be built. What, what is he, he? He calls it fugitive spaces or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, he, he talks about about building an insurgency of mm-hmm. students who are going to seize back their schools. Um, I, what you're saying about resources it has something to do with that, too. I mean, he talks about combining education, economics and uh, and service to the community in a very creative way, I think. Don't you think? Yeah, I agree. And, you know, it kind of goes back to the earlier process that I was talking about in terms of what I've been learning from prison abolition. And I wrote a piece 
is actually is asking this question, right? Are we ready for school abolition? Ooh, right. What does that so mean? Of, right, right. So school as this idea, right? School as this order and compliance that only really demonstrates your proximity to whiteness. Mm. Where education is you asking the questions of your reality and working with others to change it. So if you are being educated, then you will instantaneously ask questions of the school, mm. right? And that becomes a project of abolition because now you're eliminating the source of the dehumanization, right? Mm. So now in this kind of broader freedom dream of education, are these places that we engage even called schools, mm. right? Right. Mm -hmm. If we're going to rethink these things. And to Jay's point, with the young folks that he works with in Baltimore, they're saying, look, here's our freedom dreams. Here's what we need. And here's the process that we will processes that we will use to build those out. Mm -hmm. And I think that that becomes important because the same because a lot of times when I would say school abolition, people would go into a frenzy. Oh, my God, is he talking about blowing up schools? I'm like, look, yo. We have to understand the reality of dehumanization and isolation under the under white supremacy mm -hmm. in school, right? Mm -hmm. And just like I love Noliwe Rooks's book, Cutting School, right? Because she's saying black communities have been asking this question in time immemorial, right? These are not the places that are educating us. Right. So now here's what we're willing to do to put the demand on this place to actually engage us on our terms that will humanize us based on how we define humanization. So what right? you're what you're asking to abolish really is something that's doing harm to young exactly. people. I mean, it's a, it's it's yeah. harming them in its daily ordinary operations. That's kind of and so the upheaval is one that says let's abolish that and create. This what you're beginning with a five point, but I want us to get up to ten points eventually. But <laughs> creating a creating an idea of education that busts through the kind of straitjacket of white supremacy, which has dominated schools for exactly. in this country forever, right? Exactly, exactly. And and like you said, and I I really appreciate that point. You know, when people are talking about getting back to normal, and that, it's always this thing around normal. Normal is the problem. <laughs> Right. right. So we have to we have to really consider that, that that normalcy is a problem. Right. The normalcy says that we are to accept our dehumanization, that we are to accept our isolation as just fate. And we know that that's not it. So now this thing around really pushing back, I think we have this window like COVID provides this window for us to kind of look in the mirror and say, look, this thing hasn't worked for a lot of different people. And now is the time to push on what we can do to shift that condition. Yeah, I mean, I think that what you're saying uh, is a long-time belief of mine that for the colonized, the status quo is a state of emergency. It's not, uh, it's not just normal. Exactly. I mean, it's a state exactly. of emergency. And I think that uh, this is a moment when we may have a window where we can actually put forward radical ideas and be listened to because the contradictions that are being revealed are so compelling, right? I mean, yep. we see everything. I was stunned when the Chicago Public Schools announced with great fanfare they were putting soap in the children's bathrooms <laughs> right, know, exactly. in February. I mean, like, dude, <laughs> you had no soap? What's, what are you, right, monsters? Exactly, you know, that's exactly kind of thing. man. I mean, exactly. I'm, I'm reading the accounts from Statesville, which is a local uh, prison in the state, and they, you know, they 
talk, they were talking about like literally having access to soap. And like I said, back to that nexus, both places where folks are historically marginalized and isolated now have, can't even get basic human needs met. How do you rationalize having a school that doesn't have soap? It's unbelievable. Right? Let alone right. nurses, social workers, and counselors. I mean, exactly. it's madness. Exactly. Yeah. Well, Dave, I, I really appreciate you joining me, and, and I think we have to we have to get together again and get our our list up from five to about ten, and then right. we have to and then we have to really organize. And the question you raised today is a question I'm taking out with me. In your dream of dreams, what would a good school look like for your children? That is an organizing tool that I think is invaluable. So. Really appreciate your being here, David, and we will talk again soon. Definitely, man. Thank you so much. Truly appreciate it. Be well, comrade. Yep, always. Let's move on now to our segment, Reports from the Front Row, pages from one middle schooler's notebook, where we look at schools and education from the inside with our engaged and fearless reporter, Light Ailey. Light is a writer, an artist, a perceptive observer, and a smart mini-ethnographer. She's 12 years old and in the sixth grade. Thanks for joining us under the tree, Lighty. Yes, indeed. Okay. Um, this is our, our third segment, so I wanted to just ask you a couple things real quickly. One is we had that segment about um, the visitor who explained to all the 12-year-olds in gym class about sex ed. But I think at the end of that, you not only found the experience kind of amusing and weird, but you also wrote a haiku about it, a poem. Do you remember the haiku? I do. Um, Why don't you haiku, recite it? The haiku was, in sixth grade health class, erections and eat broccoli was all we covered. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. That is too much. Um, and you mentioned that... that uh, being 12-year-olds, y'all were uh, couldn't decide whether to be mature or immature because you were kind of in between. And half, half, half of you was drawn in one way and half the other, right? Yes. People in my class were trying to figure out whether to laugh or try to be mature about it. They I didn't see. know which one people would like more. And, what, and, and the consensus ended up being? The both? laughing. The laughing. The laughing. <laughs> okay. Well, I think the definition of being 12 years old is... Uh, is actually being in between. In fact, I think most of life we're in between something and something else. You're in between being a child and being a grown-up. So that's a big, big transition, right? Uh, yeah, I guess. Okay, listen, you are uh, keeping a, a, a kind of a notebook about being locked down, right? You're keeping yeah. a notebook of the plague years, a notebook of the coronavirus. I wondered if you could share with us a couple stories from your notebook just to Give us a sense of what it's like to go to middle school, be 12 years old and completely isolated from your classmates, your teachers, your friends. I guess not completely isolated because you do Zoom and so on. But uh, maybe you could relay a couple of pages from your middle schooler's notebook. Well, there's one story from a Zoom class. Um, it was PE and my my teacher had told us all to leave the meeting because she was having a lot of technical difficulties. Okay. But I will now admit that I was not paying attention. I was, I was, I think I was writing some of an essay that was due a couple days later. So I didn't pay attention. So I was, I didn't leave. 
the Zoom meeting. Oh my goodness. So you just stayed in the meeting even though she asked everybody to quit. I stayed in the meeting, everyone else left. And then I was like, why is no one talking anymore? So I went back to the Zoom page and I was like, am I the only one here? So then I got a notification on my computer saying, you are now the host. Oh my God. So, so I was like, okay, off. I'm the host. And then people started requesting to come back in the meeting. And of course, being the host, I was the one who was supposed to let them in. And did you? So I, yes, I began pressing it, the admit button for everyone that came into the meeting. And they were like, where's the teacher? And I was like, I guess I'm the host now. Wow. And they were like, did you not leave the meeting when she asked you to? And I was like, I did not. Um, and then my teacher requested to get in the meeting. And people were like, don't let her in. Wow. And I was like, you guys, I would be in a lot of trouble if I didn't let the teacher in. So I let her in. And she was like, I'm sorry, I took so, so long. You know, I was locked out for some reason. Wow. And then a boy in my class said to her, that's because, that's because she's the host now and she wouldn't let you in. Wow. And I was like, oh my God. I'm surprised you didn't just start doing jumping jacks and calisthenics. I mean, you were the host. It was your gym class after all. Yeah. <laughs> Is gym class not your favorite? Well, um, we don't actually work out during the, the Zoom gym classes. Usually we just watch a video about Kobe Bryant's technique. Oh, my God. That sounds boring. You could do that without having Zoom and without going to school. Yeah, it does not have to be synchronous gym class, though. No. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's wild. So you had a, uh, it makes me think though, Lady. I mean, you could actually have, um, you could have, have a mutiny where you take over the classes. You could do that in real time as well as in Zoom time. And you kind of did it accidentally, but why don't you kind of give that some thought? Yeah, I, that's probably true. I've always said about teaching, you know, that, that if you, if, one of the things teachers should be afraid of is that there's more of them than there are of you. And if they ever got organized, they could tie you up and put you in a corner and take over class. I, I think teachers dread that. That's why they obsess about classroom management, I think. I'm not sure. Actually, that is something I consider a lot, especially during my full band periods. You consider tying the teacher up and putting him in the corner? No, not that specifically. But during most of my full band classes, there are like, 70 kids in my in my band in in, uh -huh. in band at school and i'm just there's there's three teachers mm. three band teachers and 75 kids wow so the fact that we all follow the teacher's rules even though we could just totally overthrow them is just interesting to me it's interesting and it should give you some subversive ideas i like it so uh mull on that for a while you said you had another story from your notebook. What's your other story? Um, well, what, like, I have a lot. What would you want to hear about? Well, I'm just interested in what it's like being, um, you know, kind of isolated. I know that, that when you're in school, there's a lot of kind of talking to your friends, meeting up with your friends, having special kind of language between each other and all that. How does that work? I mean, I can't imagine how it works. I don't know how many people are familiar with the Zoom breakout rooms. Yeah. Uh, usually our teachers put us in breakout rooms of possibly two to three to four 
students and we have to do something practice our instruments talk about what book we're reading things like that yeah breakout rooms i understand why teachers would want to use them because it's like giving kids like a little chance like talk in private with each other but breakout rooms are just excruciating in middle school because no one talks why well people neglect to speak first so Mm. no one speaks first so Mm. it's just horribly embarrassing to be in a breakout room and everyone's just silent but you know these kids right i mean why would you be embarrassed to speak first well i mean i'll give you an example so the other day we were me and a couple of other students um we, we were supposed to be discussing a chinese folk tales book we were reading right okay mm-hmm. so and our teacher wanted us to tell each other our favorite part in one of the folk tales mm-hmm. and nobody spoke first so eventually it just got too painful and i was like do you guys want to like what sh- should shouldn't we be like doing something uh-huh and one of the girls was like, yeah, we, we should probably just share this. Do you want to go first? And I was like, I mean, sure. Because, like, no one wants to go first, right? Right. Got it. But I, like, read my favorite part, and then no one else read theirs. Oh, my. So I was just, like, alone with my favorite part of the Chinese folktale. It's just, it's very embarrassing. I don't really know how to. Well, I mean, one of the things I wonder, though, is, is it embarrassing because you feel like you're sucking up to the teacher? Or is it embarrassing because it puts a spotlight on you? Or is it embarrassing because other kids might judge you? What makes it embarrassing? It's embarrassing because, well, in middle school, I've heard that you're way more embarrassed about a lot of things than you would be in other grades and ages. You've heard that, but is it true? Uh, I would say yes. Okay. I used to not be embarrassed of many things, but now it's my senses of embarrassment have gotten more sharp. Um, But it's embarrassing because you're in this room with a bunch of just like silent kids. So being like my favorite part, Uh it just seems like shouty and like, Hmm. yeah. And it's like sucking up to the teacher. Like in some better case scenarios in the breakout rooms, we just talk about something totally different. Okay. And and does it feel self-centered? Does it feel like you'll be accused of being conceited or that kind of thing? Yeah. You say shouty? Sort of. Yeah. Do people do people talk about being conceited a lot in middle school? Um, probably not in that word. But people do talk about yeah, like who's the annoying popular kids and who's the goody two shoes, you know. And which one of those are you? I don't, uh, I don't think that's for me to decide. <laughs> okay. Listen, we're going we're gonna to end this segment right now, but I appreciate your being with us. And uh, thanks for reciting your haiku. Maybe we'll do some more poetry down the line. Sounds good. Okay. Talk to you soon. All right. Bye. Before we say farewell for today, I have a homework assignment for you. Begin to assemble your book of books. For some of you, you need look no further than the memory of a title you haven't gotten to yet, offered by a sister or a brother in the last short time. Or perhaps it's no further than a table in your home, or a pile beside your bed, or on a staircase. Start there and ask yourself, what do I need to read now?
and why to become a more educated person, a more dedicated person, a person more engaged in the social reality all around me. Big thanks to my comrades from Ergo, Damon Williams and Daniel Kissinger, supervising producers and intrepid mentors in this enterprise, and to my workmate in arms, Malik Alim, engineer, recordist, mixer, musicologist, caregiver, and philosopher in residence. Thanks for being here. With joy in my heart and justice on my mind, until next time. Black for the skin, green for the land, red for the blood, steady freedom's hand, alone with the wind.